I'm Jean Sherman, just for those who don't know me, and um, SCAF uh, has been going for 10 years. This is our 10th year, and some of you have known me for 31 years, when, uh, which adds in the 21 years of the Sherman Galleries. Uh, so this is my 31st year in exhibition making. Um, what we have done in the, during the, ten, the course of the 10 years at SCAF uh, is commission projects. Not every single project has been a new commission, but the bulk of them have been. Uh, and uh, this is the 35th project, Shigeru Ban. Um, they've mostly been commissioned... Um, uh, artists have been commissioned from Asia, Australia, and the Asia-Pacific, Australia, and the Middle East. Uh, and uh, there is a... Um, they knew work. The artists were given quite a generous amount of money uh, as a, like a project grant, including a catalogue, and we try and do the best possible catalogues we can. So if you haven't seen the Shigeru Ban catalogue, do pass it around. I'll take the one, and then I'll give uh, pass the other one, so I've passed it around here. Um, and we also, uh, for each um, project, the 35, we produce a short film, there are uh, Max. When did you start? Thirteen. So uh, Max is a filmmaker, trained filmmaker, Max Homai, and he only came in 2013. So we didn't really have somebody on staff up until then. I suppose I could have found somebody, but I didn't think of it until Max was here. And also we had someone on staff who got to know the project, who was here through the project, who often started the project even outside of Australia. So, for example, Max came with me to Vietnam before Votrong Nia's project. So he took footage in Vietnam, then the work arrived in Australia, it arrived at the door, it was all in pieces, it uh, was put together, we showed it in Brisbane. You really have to have someone on staff to get all that footage. Otherwise, you would be bringing someone in and out, uh, you know, 25 times and sending them overseas. So we've got little films. Uh, they're about three to five minutes, and you can see them for each project on Vimeo. Flash, uh, so it's Vimeo slash SCAF, and also on iTunes. Now, we consider that part of our archives. There are uh, chairs there, Sophie will get you one. Um, those, that's part of the archive uh, process, Harriet, as I said. Also, the person who designs our catalogues in secret did a poster, just for his own pleasure. I didn't ask him to do it or pay him for doing it. Uh, he did a poster for every exhibition every project so that's part of the archives as well he suddenly coughed it up in the middle of nowhere and some of the posters are upstairs and then um we have we've got the archives themselves which i hope all of you have seen laura brandon is um the archivist uh, sitting there and has been with us for a long time. So she has a corporate history in the gallery, a gallery history, um, before she became archivist. She's here two days a week. And Sairi uh, is an intern who just loves the archives and doesn't want to stop, even though she's got her master's degree already. Um, she started as a student. So you can see that this archival process has been quite... Um, 
quite a considered one when you go upstairs. I did, I was telling Harriet earlier, I did do an archive for Sherman Galleries. No one who's ever done research at PhD level does not, or any level, even master's level, by by research thesis, is unaware of the importance of an archive. Because if you if you haven't got access to previous history, you can't write anything. You, you, you have to have somewhere to go to collect the information. And in my day, my, my PhD was finished in 1980. There was no internet. I had to travel to Paris. So on that note, I want to introduce Harriet. We are so honoured and pleased to have her because um, Harriet is an architectural historian. Is that the best way of describing you, Harriet? A professor... A, a, a professor, but uh, to have a historian and somebody who works with archives at RMIT uh, and is running their archival centre is really a wonderful opportunity for us to see what other people do. All we know is you, Stephen, and happy as we are about that, we would like to find out what some other people do. So uh, Harriet has uh, all sorts of wonderful um, credentials to her name. Uh, architectural history I've told you about, director of the um, RMIT Design Archives I've told you about, Pre president of the Society of Architectural Historians, well that relates to the history. She's a fellow of the um, Australian Academy of Humanities and I have a little glimpse, uh, looked it up as to what that means uh, or Anne-Marie helped me look it up. It's, um, it's an elected uh, position uh, that your peers um, get involved in, so you're elected by then. And I, what her job description in brief is, is to oversee the collection, preservation and dissemination of archival material relating, it's a little bit wordy, to Melbourne design practices, including architecture, automotive design. I know, that fascinated me. Communication design, fashion uh, which is a, of great interest to me, textiles and industrial design. So it's all of that material that comes under the one umbrella. So over to you, Harriet. We can't wait. Thank, Thank you very you much, Shane. Um, as you can see, I'm much more used to giving formal talks and, and I didn't really know the audience. So um, this is a fairly formal talk. I'll try to liven it up a bit. Um, so it doesn't, you don't sort of fall off your chairs, but uh, it's, and I, it might go on, uh, uh, 45 minutes, is that right? Mm. Well, tell me when I, I do ramble, so just tell me when it's, you know, oh, I'm up so you know, time, yeah. Okay. Um, and I've, I've sort of divided into into three bits. This is a work in progress. I gave a talk last year on the archive at Lion House Museum, and I'm still trying to think about what, work out what it is I think about archives, and so this is my next iteration. It'll eventually end up as a book, but you have to bear with me. This is yet the next sort of version of it. So the first, the, the three sections is something about the history. Then I'll very, very briefly, because I'm an architectural historian, I haven't focused on art archives. I've focused on architectural and design archives. That's my interest. I'll just give you very brief 20th century history, about half a dozen of them and where they're placed, and then I'll talk about my own archive and where that's situated and what we're trying to do with it. I hope that's okay. Um, <clears throat> so this is the formal bit. Just please don't... I mean, I, I will get over it eventually. In her... And I do come back to this issue about this woman. 
In her 1898 book, uh, The Allure of the Archives, Arlette Farge, and this is a very famous book, offers a reader a seductive and sensory initiation into the pleasures of archival research. Centred on her own experience in the French judicial archives, specifically in the criminal records of the Prefecture of Paris at the Arsenal Library, where the police archives are held, Farge's book is <coughs> striking evidence of the so-called archival turn of recent decades. And this is a quote from her. In writing, no matter how meticulous, how regular... Sorry, the writing, no matter how meticulous, how regular, is barely legible to untrained eyes. It sits before you on the reading room table, most often a worn-out looking bundle tied together with a cloth ribbon, its corners eaten away by time and rodents. And so she goes on about what it's like to unpack the bundle and read these ancient documents. Through her almost visceral um, engagement with the archive, Fudge has brought to life women and men of Paris in their workshops, bedrooms, kitchens, on their doorsteps and in their streets and taverns, making appeals to their parish church and summoned before the commissariat of police. And she belongs to what's known as the French Annales School of Historians. And these historians, uh, there was a very famous book published called Montaigu in 1978, and they go back into the archives and they try to find voice for the forgotten people in French history. Um, these studies are testament to an understanding of the archive, and this is what Jean was talking about, as the evidentiary basis of the historian's work. As Irving Verity notes, at the backdrop of all scholarly research stands the archive. Appeals to ultimate truth, adequacy, and plausibility in the work of the humanities and social sciences rest on archival presuppositions. And this understanding of the archive as the source of truth belongs not only to the um, historians, a particularly good film, I really like this film, um, was Stephen Polyakov's 1999 TV drama Shooting the Past. And in this film, the story follows the Fallon Photo Library. It's got millions of photos in it. A vast collection of 10 million photos. It's put in jeopardy when this man down here, this American, um, buys the decrepit building that it's housed in and wants to disperse the, the, um, <coughs> the collection. The eccentric manager and librarian um, attempt to ward off this, uh, which would see the destruction of dispersal, and dispersal is really important, of the collection which was held together by various forms of quiet guerrilla warfare. Their final success involves discovering photographic evidence of the new owner's grandmother. This highly personal and powerful denouement brings to mind one of TV's most popular franchises. Who do you think you are? In Australia, the show is sponsored by Ancestry.com that now appears to hold proprietary rights over much of our personal data. And by shows such as this furthers our seemingly inexhaustible passion for family history and genealogical research. But the interesting thing is that this TV series, it takes a celebrity like Tony Collette um, through their family history by means of well-scripted, well-chosen artefacts from national and international archives. It's nearly all based on archival research. Birth records, employment records, convict lists, religious registers, all dramatically disclosed against, uh, disclosed against exotic locations. And the extraordinary popularity of family history and genealogy is an affirmation of the centrality of the archive, I think, to our sense of identity as people and on a larger canvas of our nationhood. The word archive originally developed from the Greek archaeon, which refers to the home or dwelling of the archon, in which important official state documents were filed and interpreted under the authority of the archon. And so what's interesting here is that from the very earliest times, archives were linked to authority. 
the authority, the garden, the institution, the state and the family. And for some cultures, in some moments in history, only those in authority could actually keep archives. So the practice of keeping official documents is very old. Oh, sorry, this is um, <clears throat> just a, a, a number of books that are symptomatic of this fascination with archives that's sort of erupted in the tw 2000s. Lots and lots of people are writing about them. The practice of keeping archives is very old. Archaeologists have discovered archive, archives in clay tablets going back to ancient Turkey, Greece, Iraq and elsewhere. They were very well developed by the ancient Chinese, Greeks and Romans. And while much of this very ancient historical record has been lost, um, the archives of churches and kingdoms of the Middle Ages um, survive in surprising abundance. And of course, it's these records that people go back to, historians go back to, to um, research those ages. However, modern archival thinking really emerged in the 18th century. And needless to say, the French were involved. The vast French national archives, with records going back to AD 625, were created in 1790 during the French Revolution by various government, religious and private archives when these, sorry, various government, religious and private archives were seized by revolutionaries and centralised in Paris. And the intent here was to control the archives in order to establish a modern history of France. And these were seen through the canonical texts. That is, they determined history's winners and losers. And one of the things that people like Arlette Farge tries to do is to go into the archives to find the voices that have been lost the people who are the losers in history. <clears throat> so since the 19th century, when archival theory was formalised for, for, for the first time, certain fundamental characteristics have been deemed essential to the nature of the archive. What they call respect de fond, respect for the origins of archives, appraisal, description, provenance and original order. And we were talking about original order yes. just before. Very important. And the role of the archivist in maintaining the integrity of the archive. Amongst these, appraisal is sometimes seen as the most important activity. And a traditional view of appraisal goes something like this. A document which may be said to, be, uh, to belong to the class of archives is one which was drawn up or used in the course of an administrative or executive transaction, whether public or private, of which itself formed a part and subsequently preserved in their own custody for their own information by the person or persons responsible for this transaction and their legitimate successors. So your archive is exactly an example of that description. Um, a document, well, it, it's really, the, an archive is, is a body of documents that are um, almost the sediment, if you like, of, of um, an institution or a person's life in practice. And that's why original order and provenance are so important. And theoretically what happens in an archive is when, for example, state archives and the judicial archives, when they go into, say, the French archive, they're kept in their original order. They're not fiddled with. And what, so what, that's what I was talking to you upstairs about the original order. So there are a number of key, and I'll just go into, I don't go on about this very much, um, but since we're in an archival situation, which I didn't really realise, so I, I would have done more on this, but there are a number of key themes here that I think it's important to the way archival theory and management have unfolded into the 21st century. Archives are taken to be a product of um, preservation and significance of past records. Oh, sorry. Oh, product of. 
So I was saying internal action. So there, it's you acting as the director of this gallery. All of the things that you put aside, that's what an archive is. That's what it's understood to be. Furthermore, they are impartial and truthful. <clears throat> if they're altered during the course of these internal transactions, that's totally fine. They're not meant to be altered afterwards. Mm. However, historically, archives are altered, particularly by autocratic people, you know, sort of mad people who then alter the archives to alter the... Um, history. So the key characteristics of the archive are impar impartiality and truthfulness, hence the most reliable source for both law and history. They provide first-hand evidence because they form an actual part of the corpus of the facts of the case. That's a legal notion. Naturalness, the fact that archival documents are not contrived outside the direct requirements of the conduct affairs, and as I said, they're like the sediments of geological stratifications. They just um, fall down as you know in these sort of stratifications as they are created and they stay there until they're put somewhere. Interrelationship. Archival documents are linked amongst themselves by a relationship that arises at the moment in which they're created, is determined by the reasons for which they're created and is necessary for their very existence. That would make a lot of sense with your archive. Each of those boxes would have interrelated documents. I'll talk about that later. Uniqueness which derives from each archival document, even a copy, every single document is unique, needs its own record, I hate to tell you, and it has a unique place in the structure of the group, and authenticity, and that's what I think people nowadays like archives, it's this concept of authenticity. And this is linked to the continuum of creation, maintenance and custody, what we might also term provenance and original order. <clears throat> now, none of these characteristics has to do with valuing value um, valuing content, valuing one part of the archive over another, because that would imply personal judgment. So these are meant to be value neutral. Um, <clears throat> however, uh, I won't read this out, but that is the theory of, that is a very potted history, if you like, the theory of archival science. Some of the key elements that you can pull out of people who write about archival science, it doesn't work like that in practice. Archives are incredibly messy, the State Archives of Paris might be wonderful, but almost nothing else is, as far as I can understand. And that's what I'm going to talk about, you know, from now on. And what I'm particularly, why I'm particularly um, interested in this is because of my own job. And uh, now I just want to talk very, very briefly. It's really an overview, a scatty overview of architecture and design archives and museums. And that slash there is important because there are very few pure archives in this space. Um, so let's go to the most famous one. <clears throat> you probably know this one. This is John Soane's museum in London. And he started creating this um, really in the late, around about the time Napoleon was putting together and the French were putting together their archive. John was doing his own personal one. And of course he was an incredibly celebrated um, architect and a brilliant architect in late Georgian and Regency England. <clears throat> so in 1792 he began to buy these buildings in Lincoln's Inn's Field. He bought, over the next sort of 20 years or so, three of them in a row, and he started um, excavating the interiors, building on the back, and creating this extraordinary museum. Uh, have you been there? Yeah. You really must go. It is just like nothing on earth. Absolutely, yeah. 
And, and from, but from my point of view, from the point of view of talking about archives, what's of interest here is really the hybrid nature of what we have in here. We've got architectural drawings and models, pictures, objects, his own practice archive, which is a true archive, if you like. But the organised print... And what he did eventually was to create these rooms, these sort of spaces in which he would display his objects. And the rooms are just amazing. And uh, so... The organisational principle wasn't anything scientific. He was the organisational principle. His, his collections, the way he ordered them. But the whole lot, all put together, can be considered an archive. And the good thing about this is, I think pretty much, but I'm going to ask the new curator when I go to London, that it's been kept in original order. So that is one of the principles of the archive. And so this is a really good example. Now, if we go, we jump 20 years <clears throat> to the um, beginning of South Kensington Museum, which is now the V&A. They opened um, after the 1851 Great Exhibition in London and everyone, all the designers just were tearing their hair out because everything was so ghastly and badly designed and they thought, what on earth are we going to do with got this industrial revolution on our hands and no one can design anything. So they set this place up to really collect the best all around the world of industrial design, including architecture. Then they added painting. It became huge, but as you all know, it's this treasure trove of absolutely wonderful stuff. And it was designed as part of an educational, it's actually government educational um, precinct, and it was designed to teach people. It was an educational um, it was designed, in fact, to teach the working man and woman who came there and could learn from these examples. Some of them were cast, some of them were original. Um, it was, in fact, like Soane's private museum, defined by its educational mission, because Soane had his students in there. He always wanted his museum to be educational. And I, I've never thought about this before until I put these two slides together. I thought, ah, oh, this has actually got a lot in common with Soane. So Soane might have been at the beginning of this concept of a certain sort of design museum based around education. Now, of course, the v as you probably know, is a vast and wonderful museum, and we love it. Um, recently, it joined forces, because one thing I have discovered in my um, internet searches is that in order to be a really great museum in the world, you have to have counted all of your artefacts and you have to have more than anyone else. So it's really amazing how... I don't know how they know how, many, how much stuff they've got anyway. So they've joined forces with this institute, which is a bit older, the REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects, and um, together they have the world's most comprehensive architectural archive and museum, and they do, because the REBA, founded in 1837 has, at the moment, over four million items in its collections. Models, drawings, photographs and archival documents, all relating to architecture. It's quite amazing and a fabulous library. And you can just trot in there. Anyone can trot in there off the street and research. So <clears throat> this architectural archive has been absorbed into a museological setting. And this is one of the things that I just wanted to um, talk to you about very, very briefly, going back to that idea of original order provenance, um, and so forth, respect to form, is that once uh, an archive, and this would happen in the V&A, goes into a museological setting, it happens at the State Library that have got a lot of archives, it happens probably here, I imagine, they get, dis they get dispersed. Because certainly at the State Library, 
big archives go in there. Some of it goes to manuscripts, some of it goes to paintings, some of it goes to realia, all of which have their own conservation um, protocols. You can understand why it happens. But the archive, the essence of the archive, is completely lost. And that's the problem with museums. Museums concentrate on artefacts stripped out of their context. Archives are completely different. It is all about context. You don't strip one thing out. It is about where it's found in its body of work. And that's really the difference. And I guess that's what I'm sort of trying to talk about. Okay, very, very, very brief overview. So that's what it looks like now, the biggest thing in the world. Um, in the 20th century, there's been a whole burgeoning of architecture and design museums, particularly after the Second World War. This one was a trailblazer. 1929, it started by a couple of women. And what's really interesting about MoMA, they collected architecture and design from the very beginning. And this exhibition they put out in 32 with the catalogue, that catalogue has become the most influential book on architecture in the 20th century because it formulated the concept of the international style, which didn't exist. But the, um, Philip Johnson and Hitchcock, the, the historian, got together. They looked at what was happening in modern architecture, white architecture, you know, white boxes, put it all together and said, this is the international style, and that is how you make history. And they did. So when I was there a couple of years ago, they had just, um, they had just joined forces with the, uh, the Avery Library at Columbia, some wonderful library, to get the Frank Lloyd Wright archive. And again, it's been split, obviously, because MoMA's got wonderful, I mean, drooly-type artefacts like that, unbuilt project of Frank Lloyd Wright, this gorgeous model, and the Avery's got the um, documents. So... Just very quickly, places I've been to some of these recently, which is why you, I can show these to you. The Getty Research Institutes, again, they're, they're very keen on numbers. They've got masses of rare books, single prints, drawings, rare photos, 12,000 linear feet of manuscripts and archives. That one goes on and on and on. I have to say their set out is absolutely beautiful. Um, and, of course, it, it, it contains a vast array. But like MoMA and like all the others, it's, not, it's got some very important Californian architects, but it is very dispersed. It's really a, a worldwide... They, they get stuff from everywhere, as do all of the other ones I've been speaking about. So if we talk, look at this one... Now, this is very interesting. And, again, it was set up by a woman, Phyllis Lambert in Montreal. Genius woman, wonderful woman, and um, very, very... from a childhood was very interested in architecture because of family. She founded it in 1979. She's, she's got lots of staff there. And it is really proactive in, um, in the architecture space. And it put on the best exhibition when I was there of digital of the archaeology of digital architecture. I mean, it was... And they got one of the most interesting architects in the world to curate it, Greg Lynn. So she does those sorts of things. I mean, really, really profoundly um, change-making sorts of exhibitions. And I think that is what's really interesting. It's got wonderful collections as well, fabulous library, but they are really committed to, as she says, architecture in the public realm. It is a public activity making architecture so she really takes that on board was she an architect no she wasn't I've forgotten the story but her family were involved in the set building the Seagram building oh. Mises building in New York she knew Mies mm -hmm. and she talks about that she was in, incredibly profoundly influenced mm -hmm. as a child by architecture mm -hmm. so um, 
This is much more, this is smaller in Frankfurt. It's um, the German Architecture Museum and it more or less confines itself in its collecting activities on German architecture, although again it has a wide research um, exhibition culture that takes in the world. Um, and it was um, a, a 18th century or 19th century building that's been um, uh, scooped out in the interior and this house within a house built by a very famous um, German architect called Ungers and interestingly enough he designed this wonderful house museum very much in the Sone sort of, I mean it's a modernist version of Sone it was gorgeous to see and then the, this, was, this is interesting about where we are now the, it was originally in Netherlands um, the Netherlands Architecture um, Insta uh, Institute in Rotterdam and what the state decided to do is to take on all these private archives and make them into a state ar architectural archive just recently it's been changed and it's now design and digital culture and you can see where we are moving design is huge digital culture is huge and so they are expanding their remit so it's not just architecture which is fairly abstruse for most people but making it much more inclusive and of course we have South Kensington I haven't been there yet I've been to the old one have you is it good yeah and uh, as you would know started hmm? Repurpose the Commonwealth Building, would you mind? Well, I don't know what ha happened to the Commonwealth Building. Poor old Commonwealth, anyway. But um, uh, Sir Terence Conran started out on the banks of the Thames in 1989 and he put a lot of money into removing it into the really the museum quarter in London. And uh, it opened last year and I haven't been there yet. But again, you can see the idea of the designer is... The idea of the author of the designer is is where we're at now, I think, in a lot of these places. And it's quite interesting how that has developed. You can see it developing through the late 20th century. I haven't really done the research on it, but just showing you these slides made me think something's happening here. And this one here, um, again, an enormous building. I don't think it's a terribly wonderful building. But anyway, an enormous building opened reasonably recently. It could have even been 2014. It's in Barcelona. And what they've done is bring together four of their smaller collections around decorative arts, ceramics, textiles and clothing and graphic arts. doesn't have architecture in it but it's got those design fields. Brought them all together to create a monument and I guess as Barcelona is known as a design city it sort of makes sense and you can see them marketing themselves in this way. Okay, now we've got... Oh, this was interesting. Um, I haven't been here either but this just opened up and I don't know if any of you have been there but the Southback Centre... And again, they go on about how big and wonderful it all is, but they've got their archive opened for that centre. And you can just go in. I think it's a beautiful display. They deliberately made it looking 50s because that's when Southbank got going after the war with the um, 1951 exhibition there. And, you know, the, there's this sense of the archive now being opened up to people. This is no longer in the basement. It's coming up front. And that's a great example of that, I think. Now, of particular interest to me are university archives, and these are a post-war phenomenon. They're typically very small, and they're typically very focused. This one here uh, at Berkeley, um, and I haven't been there, but it does, I tell you, have archives of some of the greatest 20th century architects. They're all local, people like William Worcester, fabulous architects. So they've kept it local um, to uh, California. 
And um, then we have the University of Brighton Design Archives in the UK, and their remit was around the Design Council. They were given the archive of the Design Council, British Design Council, and they've collected around that field. University of South Australia Architectural Museum, that was a donation by an architectural historian, and they have built around that. It is just South Australian architects. And it's run by a colleague of mine, um, Christine Garno, and us. So uh, we started out in 2007, and of all of the archives I've shown you, really, Berkeley and Brighton were the ones that I had in my mind when we were setting this up. They were the sort of model I was looking at. Um, we did have, at the origins, um, do lie in an earlier collection, the Francis Burke Textile Resource Centre. Francis Burke was a leading textile designer um, in Australia in the post-war period, and we had that collection. There were other collections built around it, like the Centre for Design, uh, the Fas uh, Fashion Design Council, Proacton, and a couple of others. Um, but it was quite small, and it was in jeopardy. So when, when you in jeopardy, just get bigger, was my feeling. So we decided that what we would do is that we would create a bigger archive that used that as the foundation, but we would collect across, as I say here, we, it was more expansive, but it's differently focused. We collect across all design disciplines, but just on Melbourne, just focusing on Melbourne from the post-war period. So while it's, it's in terms of discipline, it's very dispersed, in terms of geography and, and time, it's quite tight. And we did that so we really wouldn't tread on anyone else's toes. We didn't want to compete with anyone. And um, we occasionally have a few sort of spats, but by and large, we all get on pretty well. So that's downstairs in the um, archive. That's a very boring idea about some of the ways we house stuff. But because it's an institution, it's, you have to justify yourself, and it's really a research unit within RMIT, and it's aligned to the design programs, and it came, about, came fortuit entirely fortuitously. We decided to set it up just as Sean Godsell was given the remit to design the d design hub building in Melbourne, with the big circles on it, the glazed circles which are being replaced as we speak, and uh, fortuitously, the Vice-Chancellor at the time, Margaret Gardner, said we should go into that site so we would have this reciprocal relationship with design research. Sean happened, I get on very well with Sean, he happens to love archives and history, I taught him history. And uh, so he kept excavating bits more space for us until finally we had this lovely building. Um, and as I say, I'm a historian, I'm not an archivist. And so clearly that has an impact on collecting rationale, priorities and so forth. And because architecture and design at RMIT have built a very strong reputation for practice-based research, we've got a huge PhD program around that. We do practice-based PhDs. So from the beginning, the archives focused on that. And we focus collecting. It's not always possible, but as much as possible, we try to collect archives that demonstrate exemplary practice. And we can show practice through the archive. And that's something that museums don't do because they're interested in the single object. It's something archives actually can do. And from the beginning, um, we had this idea of the active archive. I don't know how... How am I going for time? How many more minutes? 
Okay, is that right? All right? Okay. Um, so from the very beginning, we had this idea of the active archive. We were, we were very aware, I suppose it's because you, someone's paying your salary, someone's paying for you, you know you've got to... You've got to earn your money, you know, you've got to earn your salary, if you know. So we always had this idea of the active archive. How can we just not collect? How can we make this mean something? And we've been working on this for 10 years now. It's our 10th anniversary this year. And we've trialled all sorts of ideas. I'll just take you through some of them um, to see what we're doing. We're very small. Um, for a long time, there's just been two staff, which is actually, because I'm 0.6, it's 1.6 staff. Um, we're about up to about... Um, I don't know, 2.5 now with two short-term contracts. So it's not as though we have an overabundance of, of resources. Um, however, we're agile and, uh, and we do a lot of multitasking. So one of the most interesting things we did in terms of new modes of access, I love this project, and it came from Robin Healy, who used to be the curator of fashion up at Canberra and then at the NGV or the other way around. And then actually I brought her into the school and she now heads up the fashion program at, at Brunswick in, at RMIT. And she had this idea of the nomadic archive. It's this gorgeous idea that we would get archives in their archival boxes. Talking about boxes, we use archival survival boxes. They're um, inert plastic. Um, and so that's an archival survival box. That's Mick Douglas um, bringing the box to the craft centre. And so what Robin's idea was that the box, could, the several boxes, one contained Francis Burke textile samples and the other contained some of the work of Gerard Herbst and that's him there. Now Gerard is a terrific figure. He came out in 1939. He had helped a Jewish family in Kristallnacht, so he was targeted by the SS, so he got out of Germany as fast as he could, and um, he was employed immediately at Prestige Fabrics, and he became their studio design um, leader, and he made a huge impact there. Then he was brought into RMIT to head up industrial design. We had the first industrial design course in the country, but it was a bit sort of withering, so he was brought in in 1960, and he made huge um, changes there. He's a great humanist. He read everything and he I've interviewed some of his former students and they said, I didn't ever know what Gerard was talking about, but he taught us to think outside the box. All of those people went on to really illustrious careers, one of whom was the first um, designer at the GM GMH design studios, automotive designer. So that's um, uh, Gerard Herbst's grandson talking him about some of the fabrics, some of his work he did at, uh, at um, Prestige. And this is Robin and Gerard um, and Daniel looking at some of the Francis Burke textile samples. So even though it's fairly relaxed, there were archival, you know, we did put in conditions around, you weren't allowed to touch things and so forth. But it was a way of getting the archives out. And at the same time, we had film showing. At the same time, Gerard was interviewed, so that has entered into our archives. So it's, that, it's what you were talking about. It's that reciprocal thing. You have activities, they become part of the archive. Um, then this was sort of later. This was the very first exhibition that was held at the RMIT Design Hub Gallery. It's a, a gallery which is, again, it's a new gallery and the curators are highly interventionist and that's what they try to do. They try to bring in new practices, young practices, to intervene, often in old ideas. This exhibition, their first one, was in fact a travelling exhibition of 
independent publishing, which happens to be a real passion of mine, um, zines, funny magazines that never last very long, all that sort of stuff, and it was an international one. But what they did on the one hand was set up like a boxing ring. On the one hand, you've got the internationals, and on the other hand, you've got the Australians. And uh, in that, uh, we lent some objects, because we do have a bit of um, in, in independent publishing. I, I have been an editor of one of those journals. Um, but in, in what happened at the end is that we were donated a whole lot of the publications that were shown, so that built our collection. And that was a really great way to go. Then this is... Um, I do have to, to um, sort of confess, I'm president of Automotive Historians Australia. I noticed that, but I'm I know. not sure that's what that's Well, because I, I curated an exhibition quite... I, the story is long and weird at the National Gallery on Cars with Tony Elwood. I mean, he decided that we'd do it, and so we did it. And we, it really became, came about because we have an automotive collection. We had the Phil's Mood collection. And, I just, and they're beautiful drawings. And I realised then that there was something that I never knew we designed cars in Australia. I thought they all came from GM and Detroit, but no, we did. So this was a real lear learning curve for me, and I am a bit of a magpie in my interest. So we had our first conference last year, and what we did, and this was really lovely, it was just for an enthusiast day. It wasn't just academics, it was enthusiasts and the automotive community because that is where the knowledge is. No one in academia has any idea much about automotive history. It's sitting in the heads of mainly men, floating around Australia, and everyone is really anxious that we try somehow to capture that because it's going to be lost. And we had this conference, and the Saturday was Enthusiast Day, so they spoke about their own uh, recollections and their own histories. They brought along their own collections. So we brought out our collections, RMIT archives, have a collection of automotive material because we've been teaching automotive since 1905. Then the RACV had artefacts, and then members and enthusiasts. So they were really rather lovely. Um, uh, and everyone got very enthusiastic and it was just a nice thing to do. It's sort of, again, putting all these collections together to see what's out there. Um, new audiences. So that is a way of bringing new audiences into the archive. There are other ways we've, we've developed. International audiences, for example, this was the International um, Typographic Summer School that goes around to different international centres every couple of years, run by a British designer called Fraser Muggeridge. It was held in Melbourne um, in 2015, and we brought out, we've got a, one of our strengths actually is graphic design. It, it's a wonderful collection. And, um, and that's interesting, because in terms of how we got it, is we got Alex Stitt of Weatherhead and Stitt, we got his collection to start with, then he told all his mates they had to give them their collections to us. That's how we got our product design collection. So it's very interesting, it's word of mouth. And you have to build up trust and confidence um, with your donors that you'll respect their work. So these guys are all looking at our collections. Again, they're in plastic, so they can't touch them. And that was reaching out to this new audience. And actually, Fraser has come in and become one of our PhD students. I'm not supervising him, but he came in after that. Um, then another one at the Hub. This is just closed. This is high-risk dressing. It was the Fashion Design Council. What the Hub did was they asked some young 
design uh, practitioners to come in and to, and to riff on the Fashion Design Council, whose archive we have. At the same time, we put up a mock archival shelves and put out copies of some of the archive of the Fashion Design Council, which was this extraordinarily innovative collective of fashion designers, architects, a whole lot of other people in the 80s, early 90s. And we archived as we went along with our online collection management system. We trained people to use it and they came in and did archiving. So it was about bringing the archive, what actually archiving is in this KEMU online management system, which is not intuitive, I can tell you, what it means and giving some people insight about what actually, you know, archivists do. Oh, and this was another, this is a very obvious way we get out into the world. We started publishing a newsletter to begin with, but now it's a journal. I um, got on board Stephen Bannum from the very beginning to design it because I learnt something um, about design when I was in, um, head of school is that actually you need graphic designers to do graphic design. And so he's done this gorgeous sort of sequence and we're still going. And we'll put out our 10th anniversary issue soon. Why is it how many times a year? It's only twice a year. It's really, I mean, I have to do it. It's quite hard work. I'd like to put it out more. But what this one here is on graphic design, and that was these two last ones have been um, uh, edited by... Uh, Colleagues of mine, not me, I've edited the others, but by and I try to get other people to write articles. And in fact, I don't know if you know Katrina Quinn, she's a curator up in Sydney. Well, she has written for us and she wrote something on crimper furniture because there was a great Sydney um, client of crimper whose whole house was filled with crimper furniture and she's written about that here. Um, so we get uh, all sorts of people to write. I, I try not to... Uh, write too much myself. And this is really interesting for a research-based institution. It mightn't mean so much to you, I'm not sure, but I'm very pleased with this and it's something we really want to develop. Um, uh, what we try to do is not... It's, it's, it's what we do with practice-based uh, PhD research. The idea is the researcher conducts their research through design, not about design. It's through the design process. And what we've... We tried a very little project. We got some money um, from the government. I think it was about 25000 to do this project. And there was a group of us. There was a graphic designer, an architect, me, a couple of other people. And we looked at the Frederick Romberg archive and tried to think of a different way of explaining it um, architecturally and the graphic designer explained it through these beautiful posters. He, instead of the, this is our journal, but it was presented as a series of posters rather than a normal looking journal. So that was the first sort of go we had. This, is, this was this year and this was wonderful. We have a collection that was all scrunjled up because it came to us years ago in a folded up form. For architectural drawings, that's terrible. Um, and it was the Ernest Fuchs collection, and I didn't really know how much was in it. But Alan Pert, who's a professor up at Melbourne Uni, knew he had it, and they had some Ernest Fuchs as well. So he set up a project with his students, there's 28 of them, I think, to look at the Fuchs archive. And in the end, they found at the um, Jewish Museum, at the Holocaust Museum, at the State Library. So this archive was spread across five institutions. 
And what the students did, they went to each one of the institutions and they started to, they flattened and, and sorted and catalogued, uh, or started to catalogue our collection. They did the same with the others. And they put it all together in a virtual way and then they worked together to produce this absolutely beautiful exhibition. It was totally minimalist. It was in the Fuchs house, Ernest Fuchs' own house he designed in Caulfield in the 60s and Alan Pert, who's this professor at Melbourne, now is renting it. He lives there. And and they took the notion of the archive very seriously, so they had archive boxes, and the students had copied lots of the documents they had found, so they created their own little archive boxes. And they had documents, and they just inserted these very lightly throughout the house, so each room you went into had some sort of related documents related to the archive, and it was just really gorgeous. And the students got so much out of it, so we know... And as I mentioned to you before, students love archives. They love the tactility of it and the realness of it, I guess. Similarly, um, this is the Centre for Contemporary Photography. They came to us because they were doing a project with a bunch of artists and they wanted the artists to do work to look at um, Wolfgang Sievers' photographic archive, which is dispersed all around the place. We've got quite a lot of Sievers' photos in our collections. One, That's the Romberg collection. Stanhill Flats, I'm not sure if you know that, in Melbourne it's quite a famous modernist building, but Wolfgang Sievers did the most iconic, famous um, photographs of it. So they came to see us, and what, again, they were doing was creating their own work out of their understanding of this historic archive. So we like to do projects like that. Similarly, the Living Archive project last year was with a bunch of students from... Um, they're actually... 48 of them, I think, no, 45 of them. There's an awful lot of them from communication design at RMIT. I pulled out three um, graphic design archives, well, not complete ones, bits of, um, and then they looked at them. They knew nothing about This was from the 70s, and they, the history of graphic design in Australia hasn't been written. So these are really important ways of starting to write that history. And, um, and the students then produced their own posters. And we're looking to embed this particular class in the archives. It will happen every year. Um, and this is of particular interest to me. Um, this is Jenny Grigg. Now, Jenny Grigg is a Sydney cider, although she now lives in Melbourne. Um, she is a world-famous graphic designer, particularly book cover designer and book designer. Um, I don't know, the, a couple of years ago, the book that won the um, Booker Prize called, it's not Illuminations, Luminary, something like that has got the, the, the moons on it. The, anyway, she designed the cover of that. She's very, very well known. And she came in to see me. She wanted to do, um, she's been a graphic designer at the top of the tree for 25 years and she wanted to do a PhD. And she thought she'd do it on historic collections. She'd choose David Lancashire, who's still alive, but he's donated his unbelievable collection to us, and Eric Thake, who is a, um, an illustrator and a, a graphic designer. And so she did her first presentation. All our PhDs, no matter what they're doing, have to present to panels twice a year. She did her first presentation and the chair of the panel said, Jenny, why aren't you in this? So she became a case study. And Eric Thake dropped off. 
So it's been this extraordinary conversation between Jenny and David Lancashire. And what she discovered they had in common was materiality and paper. They both work with paper. And so this is the most gorgeous example of working with and through an archive with the person who's created the archive to create this sort of symbiotic relationship and new knowledge. And David is right into it. He loves it because he's learning about his, his practice. So, you know, it's, that, that to me is pretty special. Okay, very, very briefly. I know I've run out of time, so I'll just riff through here. Um, the archaeology of your creative city, I guess this is what I'm trying to, to do in the end, is create new sorts of histories. Many years ago, I used to try to get my head around our archives, and I'd do what I call spud maps, and I'd start off and I'd start one line, and that would be one person's archive, and then all the split-offs are where they all join together and they all become this sort of network. And I just stopped doing it. It became too big in the end. Um, but you can look at it diachronically and synchronically if you want to be sort of theoretical about it. So obviously archives... Um, in terms of an archaeology of a creative city, they, you can look at them in layers, in, in decades, layers like Ernest Fuchs. So we've got his collections from the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, and so forth. So every archive is like that because we organise them chronologically. So you can do that chronological dig. This one, for example, is really interesting. It's just a snippet, but Graham King was a... Um, a um, a printer, he was, he was actually a printmaker, but he also did commercial work, and he worked for Firestone, who was a Dresden-based uh, show cards, specialist show cards maker. And um, they set up in Melbourne. And then we've got David Lancashire, who works with Avon Graphics and does these amazing embossed work on paper for Avon Graphics. I discovered way after we got these two completely separate archives that Avon Graphics bought out Firestone. So that's a little sort of industrial history in there. Then you've got the synchronic, the adjacencies and practices. Uh, this is um, Louis Kahan, some little sketches he did in the 20s in Paris of Josephine Baker and Paul Poiret, the fabric designer he was working for. This is Michael O'Connell, completely different, didn't know any about, thing about this. We've got a fabric he designed in about 1931, which actually shows influence of Paul Poiret and Matisse and the French, you know, avant-garde. But this I love. Now, sorry, I'm going to... Uh, uh, this is a photograph of Diane Masters in an award-winning garment. And I don't know if you can read the back of it. It's probably very blurry. The photograph was taken by Helmut Newton, a very famous émigré German um, photographer. The garment was designed... So... Um, uh, the garment was designed by Mag, a famous Melbourne um, couturier outfit, and uh, the, it was of yellow rayon, which was spun by British silk spinners. And um, uh, what was the other thing? Anyway, each one of those you can pull down and you can find in our archives. And I'll just give you a... Gerard Herbst, for example... Um, Oh, I know what it was. The, the, the fabric, it was spun by British um, silk, um, rayon spinners, but it was actually made by Prestige Textiles. That was the thing. That's why Wolfgang Siebers and Gerard are in there. So we have Gerard Herbst archive, um, and this is just how you can... Each one of those things you can just pull down and you just get more and more connections. And this is just a little 
sample of connections. It's a letter he wrote to the, to, uh, to the woman who set up the Francis Burke Textile Resource Centre about this postcard he was donating by Yvonne Raphael, who was a great client in the 50s. She'd been to London to the Design Centre. Gerard talks about these great designers called uh, people like George Crowell. We've got George Crowell's archive. We've got something of, of um, Yvonne Raphael. So you start to just get this sense of cities aren't born randomly. They build up layers and layers of cultural capital. And that's what I think the archive can show. And finally, and this is really finally, the digital archive, it's a huge topic I'm not going to talk about. It means two things. One, an analogue archive that's been digitised, which is what we all do. And it's the only thing you can get money for nowadays. Or a born digital archive. So they're all analogue um, archives that have been digitised. This is a born um, uh, a born digital archive. It's, it's artists who only work in the digital realm, archiving the digital realm. There is no analogue version. But against that, I would say, this has made me think about the digital. It's made me think about what archives is and what particularly they can offer, particularly to um, students and to younger generations who are very enamoured of archives and it is about materialism. It's about and a new theory fortunately has, has, has entered into our vocabulary of new materialism. It's looking at the embodied nature of the way we live, our relationship to, to our environments but also our relationships to the objects we create and very, very finally I just want to end up on this man here Anatole Kagan, Russian born, born in St. Petersburg, trained in architecture in um, Germany, had to leave Germany, 1939, came to Melbourne, set up his practice in Melbourne and designed modernist houses like this, which are very popular in Melbourne in the modernist sort of realm, came to Sydney when he designed, he'd put in an entry to the Sydney Opera House and he's extremely miffed he didn't win, um, and came to live in Sydney and worked for the PWD. But when I came up to look at his archive, this is what I was transfixed with. This, there was material around Melbourne, which we, and including a beautiful um, photo album by Wolfgang Sievers of all of his, of Kagan's houses. But this still is one of my very favourite objects. It's all these notebooks there. They look like this. And they've got little bits of trace in them where he has painstakingly notebook after notebook, drawing after drawing for 50 years, reconstructed St Petersburg. Now, he left St Petersburg when he was eight. And I just, it was the story that got me. And what he's done, and I showed it to a colleague at Melbourne Uni who's Russian, and he said, well, what he's doing is he's restoring, because St Petersburg, of course, was badly uh, mauled during the war. So what he was doing was... Um, uh, basically obliterating all the post-Second World War buildings and trying to put back in what should have been there. However, I subsequently found out two weeks ago from a volunteer of ours who's Russian and who was born in St Petersburg and got terribly excited when she saw this, showed me where she was born and everything. She said, no, what he's doing is, he's not only doing that, reconstructing what was there, he's reconstructing what wasn't there. He's going back to Catherine the Great. He's putting in buildings in the old city that were never built. So he's building this extraordinary utopian idea of a city that he was forced out of. His family were part of, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, called the Philosopher's Boat for some great 
you know, reason the Russians decided to get rid of all of their clever people. So they put them all in a boat and sent them away, and his father was one of them. He was a very famous publisher. He ended up in New York, and his archive is actually in Colombia, and Anatole ended up in Australia. But, um, and then we've got, you know, maps and things like this, and then these extraordinary drawings he did where he sort of was trying to create it. And I think the thing about this to me is this is about materiality. This is about archives. It's about opening up those books. And once an archive gets digitised, it's fine. I mean, we do that and we try to get as much as we can online so we give people access because we do have wonderful collections. But as I was saying to Jean before, in a way, it becomes data and it becomes data that people then write over with their own voice. And when you come into the archive, you have to pause, and particularly if you're looking at objects like this, and you have to think about someone else's life, not your own. It's about empathy, and that's what historians do. It's about thinking about another life and using the archive as a way into another life so you can empathise with it and try to work out how it unfolded. And I think they are incredibly different. The virtual archive is nothing like the real archive. You need it. It operates in the world um, in a particular way, and I couldn't do without it. But the real archive is about slowness, it's about respect for someone else, and it's about listening to other voices. And I sometimes, this sounds a bit sort of spooky or pathetic really, but you're in the archive and you can hear all of these voices, they're all in there, all on the shelves. They all knew each other. They all had lunch together. You know, you're in a city and you sort of understand what that is. So to me, I guess that's what, um, that's what archives are. And your archive going into the art archive is exactly what should happen because that's what that archive will become. It'll be Sydney's voices. voices. Yeah. And you can't have them any other way. Yeah. And the fact that you're doing podcasts is great too, I mean, because then you actually have the voice. Anyway, so that's right. I'll have to have a private session. Oh, yes, Come and sit down now. You've worked hard enough. Um, no, I think it's fine. It was a, a wonderful sense. I mean, it went too quickly to get all the material into one's head. Um, what I, I just want to share one archive with you that we bought as an artwork. Uh, it's called Chinese Bible. Some of you saw it here. It was gifted by myself and my husband to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was put together by a Chinese artist called uh, Yang Zi Chao, who for three years went to the markets in China. This is fairly recently, about five years ago, over a period of three years, so maybe eight years ago, and collected a diaries personal diaries that had been um, encouraged during the Cultural Revolution and the uh, Mao Zedong's era from the beginning of communism, but very closely framed and scrutinized. And if you wrote things that were against the regime, off with your head. So these diaries uh, depended on what actual level you were in society, how much uh, secrecy or uh, privacy you manage to carve out for yourself, also depending on 
the era. It was 50 years of diaries, uh, 1950 to 2000. 1949 to 1999. And we laid them out. They'd been, we bought this. I bought it without my husband's knowledge and he nearly fainted when I told him how much it cost. But I was, if I was going to buy no other work in my life, this work I was going to buy. Yeah, Louise is nodding. I mean, who here saw it? Uh, yes, quite a few people. It really was extraordinary. But the part of the story I want to tell you is through Claire Roberts, who was the curator of the show that we had here and uh, the catalogue writer, and I can give you the catalogue, and we did quite a lot of work on iPads, taking parts of the diary. It was all in Chinese, so, you know, only certain people could read. But we did translate some of it. Uh, Claire helped organise, well, she really organised it, a group of about 25 Chinese dissidents. I mean, they were just ordinary people saying they had music lessons, but at one point music lessons weren't allowed. So if you had a music lesson, you were a criminal. So she had these 25 uh, Chinese people living in Australia of varying ages, most of them quite elderly, who had lived at through this period. And they stood round this archive. Uh, it was arranged like an artwork, so it wasn't arranged chronologically. It was on, we built a huge platform in there, and it was arranged by colour. So that if you, and shape, so like a, what would you call it, like an abstract painting. So if you stood on a ladder and looked down at it, it there were reds and blues and so on. It had nothing to do, the arrangement with the years, but there were years through this 50-year period. And these 25 writers, it was one of the key moments in my gallery life, had tears running down their eyes. They they We allowed them to... Uh, look, so we had white gloves and they opened the diaries. You know, it was very controlled recordings. I went to a music lesson. They translated bits and pieces. I, uh, in the diaries, I um, cooked this and we managed to get a turnip from somewhere, that sort of thing. Well, it was the most moving. And afterwards, I had them all for tea morning tea, and I said, you know, why, I can imagine where the emotion's coming from, but in your own words, they didn't speak good English, most of them, everyone managed, and they just said the nightmare of those years, that's what came out, the memory suddenly of the night seeing those actual diaries, they were overwhelmed with him. I've never seen so many grown men crying in one space, you know, weeping. And Asians, as we know, are, are used to controlling their emotions. They taught to. Uh, as children, you don't let the outside world see your inner th thoughts, you know. They just, the horror of it just because of the diaries. I'm sure they've all talked about it and they've all, you know, had families or other, but it was the reality of the materiality of those objects. Nothing would have produced the effect that those actual diaries did. So it was donated to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and I believe they're going to put, put it up there. Uh, uh, Stephen, do you know when? Uh, we've had some correspondence, but not a date. Towards the end of the year. Anyway, it'd be wonderful to see it again. Okay, questions? Um, about the 
about uh, twelve months or so ago, we we were we got the Bruce Rickard archive um, from his sons, uh, mainly because they couldn't find anybody who would do anything with it or in the slightest bit interested in it, um, and the archive. And we're architects, so and the archive, in terms of a, in terms of a, a collection of an architect's practice, is probably the most comprehensive thing I've ever seen. There'd be there's probably two thousand drawings, there's five hundred or a th to a thousand original Max Dupane photographs. Um, we spent, I suppose, we've, we've spent the last twelve months or so, um, sort of doing a preliminary archive. Of so like a first pass on the on the work, and um, the the archive centres around eighty residential projects that Bruce did from uh, nineteen late nineteen fifties to to um, when he died in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine. So there's eighty houses, and we organise the archive based around those houses. But in addition to that, there's his high school diaries. The letters that he wrote to his mother when he was overseas for three years studying. Um, there's uh, check butts, um, uh, job files, a, a massive amount of, of, of stuff. And um, I, I certainly agree with you about the voices that, are, that, that exist around I mean, the that's, archive. That's a good, a good archive to have. And, um, we don't have many... Sorry, we don't have many... Uh, archives of that ilk. Well, the most recent one we've got, which is exercising, exercising my mind as we speak, is Edmund and Corrigan. Because this, Peter, this is, this Peter, when he died, he let us have it. It's huge. Yeah, but this this archives mm. this archives astounding because mm. as an architect, I know what architects yeah. throw out on yeah. a daily basis. Yes, no, Bruce threw nothing. Out. No, neither did Peter. No, just bizarre. And you've got all of. It. I mean, it's, and as you say, it's. it's it's amazing. I mean, we didn't we didn't get his theatre work. That's gone to the Performing Arts Museum, I think. And Peter's theatre work was as important as his architectural work. But if I can just say one thing about the you know about an archive is I, I've been going through random they, as well as all of the drawings and the boxes and boxes of stuff. There are twenty boxes that came out of the office that just had random stuff in them. It's just taking me forever to go through them. One random stuff is a letter, Grand's um, Romberg and Boyd letterhead, 965, to whom it may concern. Um, I don't actually know Peter Corrigan, but I believe he is a very bright young architect and I know that he's been very active in the university and he does all this, blah, 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 blah. And, if, and he is rather unorthodox and given his own way, he'll have a great career, signed Robin Boyd. And to me, those two have always been in different parts of my brain. One belongs definitely to the past. And Peter, of course, because I knew him well, is part of the present. I've never connected them. Mm -hmm. And with this piece of paper... Well, there, there's just... in, in Bruce's archives, there's, a, there's amazing connection between um, Bruce and Harry Seidler. And their, their architecture was, couldn't have been any more different. Mm. But um, they, both of them, sort of together, fought, the, you know, fought to bring back Goodson... Um, and we're, there's there's all the correspondence in relation to um, save Woodson and um, or bring back Woodson mm. and all that kind of stuff. It's a kind of an amazing insight into the not only the architectural life but the other life. Of, but I of think the one of the interesting points that you're, you're making, and I don't know what's going to happen to that archive, is that 
when you look at architectural history or design history, which is pathetic in Australia, I mean, almost no one does design history, um, and architecture history is actually not too bad because people will go into archives to a degree, but it's written at this level, superficial level, it's written as a series of pictures. Yeah, yep. And... Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, there are. Sorry. Yep. Well, the, so the question, the question was really um, what, you know, if there's no interest, and, and th there was no interest in this archive, um, how, can, how can we, uh, how can Australia start to co collect a, a series of um, architectural archives when, when an architect's family rings up and can't get anybody interested? They just get chucked out. Well, so there's no answer to that. South Australia um, has invested in the Architecture Museum and that's where South Australian architects go, so that university was prepared to do it. RMIT has invested in the design archives, they're prepared to do it. Yeah. Sydney Uni. Yeah, The future of the powerhouse is a bit uncertain, but it's, it has fantastic archives. Yeah, it does. And it has they're brilliant. very professional mm. people working there. Um, but, you know, it, it's a difficult time for it at the moment, knowing whether it's going to be there, what's going to happen to its library, what's going to happen to its archive. But I wonder if they approached... Yeah, they approached a lot of people. But sometimes it's who you approached as well, well, you know. They approach state library. Absolutely. Information is given. Two more questions, but real questions now, because I'm sure Harriet will stay, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff, exchange uh, conversation there. Anybody else? Guys? Louise, you're interested in archives, or haven't you started thinking? <laughs> thinking. Uh, put his talk in there. For the White Rabbit collection. So I don't really have a question, Jean. I've just been listening and thinking very much about what you said about the, the sedimentation and the geological stratification of, of a city and the conversations that take place in a city, which, of course, is what the Sherman Archive will do as well. So mm. I think those, those archives of private collections are another, another element. So we're just beginning the conversation and... Uh, you know, thanks to conversations with people like Stephen as well, uh, and thinking about how to approach that. But what I loved particularly about your presentation was the notion of materiality. Yeah. And I've had a lot of conversations with people about digitising archival material, and of course we must do that, but that materiality is, I think, what will really interest um, academics and scholars looking at an archive mm. like and ours. Particularly... Uh, in archives, design archives or architectural art, you know, that you've, you've got the skill and so students cannot believe when they look at drawings, say product design drawings, we've got some for Frigid Air, which is actually made by GMH, and they can't believe that they're done by hand. Hmm. So just at that level of illustration, hmm. I'd love to do a big exhibition on illustration across all the disciplines because it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And everything, you know, not everything, because the, um, the, the programs that run illustrations now are so much more sophisticated, so you can actually get enormous variation in the way you do illustrate, but um, that is one of the things that, that students do really like. They really do like to look at the, the way things are drawn, because everyone's idiosyncratic. And, but, yeah. She has, she has another question. Yeah. 
Yes, take that. Can I just ask one practical question? Can you tell us something about inert plastic and what's the best thing to store things in? Yeah. Uh, well, um, we're talking... Uh, plastic does off-gas. It does do... I, I don't really quite know what it off-gasses, but it does. And so we get all our um, supplies from a place called Archival Survival, which specialises in archival boxes and plastic and we do use a lot of plastic but not everyone does. I mean when I go to the State Library um, and they've got archives going back to the beginning of Port Phillip, you know, they're unbelievably important and they're just in in um, you know, cart yeah, cardboard boxes so there's probably two schools of thoughts around that but we do use fairly expensive archival stuff. At the moment we, we can but It'll get too expensive eventually. Yeah. One last question, and then we're going to wrap it up. Anybody? Uh, come on, Stephen. I, I was just interested, um, because of the, you know, the long history of RMIT, and it's had such a distinguished history, what's happened to the institutional archive of the university? Has that survived? That's in Bandura. And um, there's a great archivist who's in control of that and she's um, getting, trying to get as much as she can, you know, digitised and useful. But I can, which I do all the time, email her and her staff and just say, I'm doing research on this, can you find out about this staff member? Can, and they, yeah, they do. It How used to they, be pretty random, but they, it's, it's good now and they've, they're on top of it. together with your archive? Well, um, no, no. In fact, we want them to take some of ours and I want some of hers <laughs> so we w won't join together not at the moment I mean when I leave you know they might decide to do that to save space but we're very particular and also uh, the people who use us are completely different from the people who use um, the, the uh, institute I mean the yeah, RMIT's archive